We've been going through Mark all year. Um, and we're in Mark, we're finishing Mark chapter 9 tonight, uh, if you want to turn there. Um, but uh, I was thinking today as I was preparing this sermon that, that in, in the world today, there are kind of three types of celebrities. There are the celebrities who are known for Lord only knows what reason they're known, like all the Kardashians and anybody from Jersey Shore. Um, people who are just famous because they're, they're famous for being famous, and that's the only reason we know them. And they contribute very little to society. Um, and then there are the celebrities who are known because of what they've produced. Those are your movie stars and your athletes, um, your slightly few academics who become famous, uh, which are none. So I guess I shot like Lex Luthor, maybe. Um, guys like that. Um, but then you kind of have the final bracket of celebrities. And these guys are not only well-known, they haven't only produced something, but they're innovators or champions of something. These people are seen as visionaries and kind of whatever they do becomes the model that people then try to replicate and reproduce. And in the music industry, right, there's the Elvises and the Beatles and the Michael Jacksons who have formed kind of eras and styles and genres of music. In film, you have the Spielbergs, the Wes Andersons, even the Peter Jacksons. Um, people who, who have not only fame, but they exhibit, exhibit influence. And one area that has crazy influence that I'll never understand is the fashion industry. And I couldn't tell you a single person, like, besides Louis Vuitton, I don't know, is that even a thing? Um, in the, I couldn't tell you a single name in the fashion industry, but I've seen the weirdest things come out. And I guarantee you that there's some fashion mogul somewhere, if she or he were to come out wearing like a Costco plastic bag, like a trash bag, it would become a thing. People would start being like, no one's worn a bag like that. We should start to do that. Um, and as foolish and as silly as some of things, these things are, that's because certain individuals have the capacity to define and redefine standards through which we view lives. And, and you've seen this in all sorts of ways in culture. And as much as I love Spielberg and I love the Beatles and I love lawn bags, um, no one is able to redefine entire categories of existence like Jesus Christ has. And really throughout the Gospels, that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to redefine everything we look at. He was an innovative celebrity this time. We've seen in Mark the crowds who are always following Jesus around. He's reframing what sin is. He's reframing what worship is. He's reframing what the Sabbath is. And that's because, it's not just because he had a good grasp on what was going on. It's because he was the creator of the whole world. He brought a unique perspective where he was not only unique, but everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was objectively real and objectively true. Everything Jesus said was real, meaning it had practical reality engaged in it, and was also true. And tonight we're going to see Jesus redefining what it means to be great in this world. And this, as, as college students looking um, into summer, looking into careers, looking into life decisions, this is really something that we, whether we're seen as arrogant or whether we're seen as humble, we wrestle with this idea of greatness. What am I going to do? What am I going to contribute? How am I going to be remembered? But what Jesus is going to cause us to do is think about how does the gospel change that? How does Jesus redefine that? And the theme we're going to see tonight, quickly, hopefully, um, is, is following Christ is a life of servanthood defined by humble cooperation 
and hostility towards sin. Following Jesus Christ is a life of servanthood defined by humble cooperation and, and hostility towards sin. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for tonight. Uh, we pray that as we look at your word, Lord, that it leads us not only to be redefined in accordance to who you've caused us to be, um, but that redefinition takes practical shape and we become uh, missionaries, we become ambassadors, we become evangelists and disciples because we understand the gift that we've been given inside of ourselves, Lord. Lord, we pray as we'll gain, great, gain greater, cl greater clarity of this phrase, Lord, we pray that this group will not lose its saltiness um, as we'll see tonight, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you'll be kind to us tonight. Um, we pray this in your name. Amen. So, in the past three chapters, kind of starting in chapter 7 of Mark, really, if the, the, the I've preached through 1 John and Mark, and the problem with preaching through those two books is they're relatively long books. Mark, John, 1 John's not long, but for some of the latter epistles it's long. And it's like the exact same theme in circles. And so in, in Mark, kind of the theme I come to the table with every week, which is always presented, is Jesus is God. Mark wants us to know that each week. And so there's only so many ways me as a mediocre preacher can dress up that theme to sound something different, but it's wildly important. And so there's something distinct that's happening here when the theme of Mark is shifting, okay? For three chapters, Jesus has expanded, he has explained, he has hammered into his disciples that he is the Messiah, that you need to believe in him, and that he is coming to die for their sins. But here, starting in the end of chapter 9, the focus starts to shift even more from who Jesus is to who we should be as followers of Jesus. And we pick this up, verses 33 through 37 of chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they, that's his disciples, kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. He said to them, If any would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so, um, I love how Mark paints the humanity of the disciples in this, because here we see um, Jesus asks them, hey, like, hey, hey guys, because they're on the road and they're talking. Jesus is probably, I mean, he's the God man, so he's probably pretty good at walking. And so he's ahead of the disciples, and he hears the disciples kind of muttering uh, behind him. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And no one answered him. Why? Because they're probably ashamed at what they were discussing, because here they are in the presence of a man who has just spent the last few days of their life transfiguring before them, raising people from illnesses, casting out demons, Jesus Christ in the flesh, and they're like, hey, who do you think's the greatest between us? Like, who's the greatest? And Jesus is right there in front of them. And so they're probably sheepish. It's one of those things where, you know, you get asked a question, and you're just like, that was dumb. I don't even need to answer that. But the thing is, is here, even though no one answered, Jesus is still pushing into the issue. Like, I have this thing with Owen, where when Owen's doing something he shouldn't be doing, I could just say, Owen, what are you doing? And he doesn't need to answer me, but he understands that dad's not asking because he cares. <laughs> He's asking because I need to stop. 
And so Jesus could have stopped there, right? Jesus knew why, because he's Jesus, what they're thinking. And we saw that in the text. He knows what they're talking about. But Jesus presses into the issue. Why? Why does Jesus press into the issue when they know what they were thinking was foolish? So foolish, none of them answered. Well, Jesus pushed into this issue because Jesus is kind to his disciples. You see, Jesus doesn't wait for you to vocalize sinful tendencies in your heart before he changes them. Jesus comes and he pressures into those things and he exposes your sin because he is gracious. You see, Jesus isn't going to discuss this issue because he wants to shame the disciples and be like, who's the greatest? It's me. Pop quiz, I win. Jesus wants to press into this issue because he wants to love them. And he wants them to have a right understanding of who he is. And then in lieu of that, who everyone else is in relationship to Jesus. You see, as Christians, as people who are followers of Christ, we should want Jesus to know our sin. We should want Jesus to labor on our hearts. We should want to be convicted because, as it says in Ephesians 5, when we're convicted, it says, Arise, O sleeper, from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine upon you. It's a good thing when Jesus presses into tender issues of sin on your heart. And here, the disciples are really just thinking in terms that we all think. Who's better? Who's greater? Who's stronger? Who's faster? Who's smarter? And really, we as humans... Um, and, and I was just, a, I, I avoid pastor conferences because I think pastors' conferences are weird. I don't like pastors, and I'm one of them. Um, but, but they were talking about it. it was with this group of older guys, and they said, um, when you get a bunch of pastors together, you start seeing this policy playing out because the first question everyone asks is, how big is your church? And so we as humans constantly, it's not just pastors, right? We are always measuring up people we know, our friends, our family. We ask, hey, what's your major What's your job? What year are you? What age are you? What are you doing? And in those, sure, we're, we're looking for information, but all of us in some way are comparing who they are to what we are and finding ways that we're better and they're lesser than us. Everyone does that. Even people who aren't just flat-out jerks, we do that. It's natural. It's part of who we are. We want to have the upper hand when it comes to recognition. We want to have the upper hand when it comes to competition. We want to have the upper hand even when it comes into neutral relationships. And Jesus sees this brewing inside his disciples, these 12 men who Jesus handpicked to follow him, to set up the church. And this is what he says to them, 35 through 37. He sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. And so this isn't, right, mind you, context is important. The speaker is important. This isn't Jesus giving an opinion from the self-help section, Right? He doesn't have his mug on front of a book just being like, this is approved by me. This isn't self-help for the Christian soul. This is God himself speaking truth and reality into the lives of those who follow. This isn't someone who is sitting at home and they're like, what if, what if we frame the greatest in terms of the last and the greatest in terms of servant? That's so countercultural. That might sell. That's not what Jesus is doing. 
He's not just trying to sell books or, or get popular. Jesus is speaking objective reality. And Jesus defines greatness. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest. And he gives a countercultural definition that means this. To be first, you must be last. And you must be a servant to all. Especially in an Americanized West, that's countercultural to everything we see as greatest. To be last, to be a servant. And then Jesus does this object lesson. And he's sitting there and he, he, he picks up this child. He says, whoever receives this child receives me. And he goes on farther. He says, you're not just receiving me. Whoever receives this child receives the one who sent me. God the Father himself. Now most people in here aren't parents. Uh, you don't have kids. Maybe as a kid you had a Tamagotchi. Any Tamagotchi people in here? Um, and so maybe you know a little bit through your, your Tamagotchi, but uh, as, as, as I've grown older and as I've, have, I've had kids, one question you get asked pretty frequently is, hey, how's, how's parenting? What have you learned in that? How's parenting changed you? And my answer is always, I've realized how selfish I am. How extremely bent in I am on myself. And I lived... I wasn't an only child, okay? I had brother and a sister. I lived in a house with six guys through college. I'm used to living around people. People probably don't look at me and be like, that guy is a selfish person. But as I married Sarah, kind of a layer got peeled off, and I realized, like, yeah, I'm kind of selfish. As I had Owen, it's like, okay, I'm more selfish. And now with Adley, who's just over a month, I'm like, you're really selfish, Tyler. And, and see, here's the thing, is, like, with Owen, I'm like, hey, can I... Like, when today am I going to have time to sneak away to the gym for an hour? When can I go hang out with friends? And it's like, I'm thinking in terms of, like, hour intervals. And now with Adley, it's like, I just want five minutes to check Twitter. Um, because when, when, you, when you take a child, they're dependent. When you take a child, you're laying down your desires and your passions in a lot of ways to then serve and to be gracious and to be kind and to pour out. In the morning, I don't get up and watch SportsCenter. In the morning, I get up and I watch Sesame Street. Okay. It's different. It changes things. And Jesus is framing all of this in light of this. Jesus is saying, a life of following me is a life of humility and service, dedicated to serving people. And so if you're a believer in here tonight, where does this show up in your life? Okay. Jesus is talking. He's not talking to the outside world. He's talking to his people. He says, you must be last of all, and you must be a servant of all. If you were to, to just parachute in to your life and watch yourself for a week, would people see you as a servant? Would people see you as someone who's concerned about the well-being and care of other people? Or would people see you only concerned of your own glory? As good as that, to come into college and be concerned about your job and your aspirations, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. But if that's so consuming in your life, that you're not serving other people, then you're not following Jesus the way Jesus wants to be followed. And in one sense, it's kind of broad to just say you should serve. And Jesus knows that. He's talking to his disciples, which have proved to be pretty obtuse over the course of this uh, book so far. So Jesus is going to give, um, he's going to flesh this out a little more. So this first part we saw um, was following Christ is a life of servanthood. That's its definition. To follow Christ is a life of servanthood. To serve, to give your life as a servant to all. But the narrative continues. Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able will be soon af- excuse me, will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So let me kind of summarize what's happening here. John, right, he's one of the inner three. When we saw the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John got to go up. And so this isn't like, like Thaddeus down here coming up and like talking with Jesus. This is John. This is one of the inner disciples. And he says, Jesus, we saw some guys who were casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop them and they wouldn't listen. What should we do with that? And there are times in the Gospels and in uh, the New Testament, we see people going and casting out demons, but they're not doing it for the name of Jesus. They might be using the name of Jesus, but they're doing it more for magic. They're doing it more for a show. And in those contexts, we know this is a bad deal. We don't have that context here. Really, the context is this is, this is a sincere Christ follower doing what Christ has done, doing what he's given his disciples the power to do. So why is it that John is upset? It's because they're not following him. They're not part of John's group. And because of that, John is upset. You see, the bite of pride is often subtle in the Christian mind, but even the slightest bite is a lethal sting. And so often we can discredit the work of other Christians. We can discredit the growth of other Christians. We can even discredit the joy and experience of other Christians because they're not us, right? We go from last to first, and we interpret everything not in light of who Christ is, but in light of who we are. We become nitpicky about their sin. We can criticize their devotion. We can discount their efforts because they're different than our own. But did you see what Jesus said about this? Mark 39, or 9, 39 through 41. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what is Jesus saying here? He says, these guys, they're doing good things. They're doing things in my name, and no one who does things in my name will be able to speak evil of me because they're doing things in my name. They're doing a good thing. And then he goes on to say that the road of gospel ministry is broad. I mean, I'm one, I'm one in my mind and in my understanding, I like to take what is this broad and make it this narrow. I want ministry to look like me, to talk like me, to act like me, to think like me, to believe like me. But what Jesus is saying here is that we need different people from different backgrounds and different groups in order to do this ministry of the church better. You see, the world doesn't need, nor does it want, a million Tylers. That would not be good for the church of Christ. It might be good for me. It might, might make me feel more comfortable. might make me feel like my efforts count more. What the world needs are people who are united in Christ. That's a non-negotiable. United in Christ on the issues of faith and salvation, but unique in belonging and emphasis. Why? Because following Christ is a life of servanthood defined by humble cooperation. To use the phrase John Luminol used, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity, and there's also no such thing as Unitarian Christianity. 
of everybody looking the same way. Why? Because God has given gifts to the church. He's given personalities to his people. He's giving talents and gifts. And at the end of this, Jesus takes what we've just been talking about, which looks disconnected, and he frames it once more in light of service. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so what is Jesus saying there? He's saying that by this man, by this Jesus-loving ministry, you're being served. You're being served through that. And not only are you being served as an individual, but Christ is being served for the good of his church. We need the help of other people to do the mission of the church. We need to pray that Jesus kills our pride, which so often draws our attention back from Jesus' goals and Jesus' missions. And we need to look at how Jesus talks. We need to look what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians 2, look at how Paul prays for a church, which isn't his home church, in verses 3 through 7, I thank God. So I want you to think of your prayer life, okay? If you have prayed for anyone who is not yourself, if you have prayed for any church or ministry which is not Sovereign Hope or GCF, does your prayer pray like Paul's prayer? I thank my God in all my remembrance for, of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. You see, part of Jesus' servanthood is that we are broad and working together, but we're also people who pray for the gospel growth of other Christians. We should be praying for ourselves. You should be praying for your own growth, but you also should serve other Christians by praying for their growth. You shouldn't be a Christian who slanders and gossips about ones who are different from us. You should be one who prays earnestly that God works mightily in the lives of all of the people who call on his name. We at GCF should pray desperately that Crew and InterVarsity and Chi Alpha and other Christian ministries on this campus are captivated by the gospel and bear gospel fruit because we need that. There's not enough campus student groups on this campus to save the amount of people or to hold the amount of people we want saved at the University of Montana. And so we want to pray for those groups and in so doing that, we want to serve those groups by praying for them by praying that the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit could do, and we want them to pray for us, and we want to look at this jointly, as different as other groups may seem, and we want to recognize Jesus is working in those groups. Jesus is working in those groups. And so we want to, with, with, with limited pride in ourselves, in humility say, if that group's going to grow, if that Christian is going to grow, I want that to happen because it's not about me. It's not about my efforts. Finally, we see this, the full thing. Following Christ is a life of servanthood defined by humble cooperation and hostility towards sin. Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter eternal life crippled with two hands than to go to, he or 
better for you to enter eternal life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if a foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this text is a huge text. And then when, when, when you talk about what, what we call, say in the Christian church, sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, this is like a go-to text. This, and in Matthew's account and in Luke's account, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. But oftentimes, I think we look at this text in isolation, and we actually miss the bigger context of what's going on here. Because in verses 33 through 37, Jesus is talking about servanthood. In verses 38 through 41, Jesus is talking about humility and cooperation. And in this very text we looked at, the first verse says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. Corporate. You and others. Look at the last verse. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's corporate. You see, we as Christians, we need to be vigilant against sin in our lives. Now, not that anybody was thinking that, but we're, we're not to cut off our limbs, okay? We're, we're not to do that. Um, and there have been weird people in church history past who have taken this really literally. That's not what Jesus is lobbying for. Keep your limbs intact. But what Jesus is doing, because he is the author of creation, he's again reframing things in light of their eternal and most important significance. Once again, Jesus is taking everything we see as real and he's framing it in light of spiritual things. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, it would be better if you were to cut it off. Why? Because sinlessness is greater than sinfulness in two hands. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Why? Because it's better to go to heaven blind than to hell with two eyes. It's better. The kingdom of God is better than everything this world offers you. So whatever it takes, go to that length to choose to live in the kingdom rather than living in sin. And the weight we have as Christians to fight against sin is huge. You should be doing it. If you have sin in your life, you should not be apathetic towards it. We should be hostile towards it. You should be violent towards it. And just to clarify here, we do not avoid hell by being sinless. You could fight sin in your life as hard and as passionate as you can, but outside of faith in Christ, you will go to hell. You could cut off all your limbs and all your eyes. You could cut out your tongue and not taste any bad food, but that will not save you. Jesus saves you. But... For those who believe in Christ, you have power over sin. Sin is not your Lord. Christ is. The temptations and desires of this world is nothing but holy cow tipping. They don't stand up to Christ. They won't stand up to Christ. And so we as Christians, by living in the power of Christ, sin is not an issue for us in terms of overcoming it. Sin is an issue in terms of disbelieving in Jesus. And for those who have been redeemed by Christ, we fight sin because we've been freed from it. But in light of, so that's the personal thing. 
But in light of the context of this text, we don't just fight sin because it's good for you. Man, fighting sin is good for you. There's joy in living under God's principles. There is joy in resisting the temptation of this world. But the weight Jesus is talking about is that you need to fight sin because it's better for everyone else. You need to fight your sin because it's better for the corporate body. One of the best ways you can serve those around you is to be vigilant against your own sin. Is to not allow sinfulness to rule in your members. You see, sin is contagious and it works really well with others. Holiness is less contagious. But we need to be hostile towards sin. We need to fight against that because being hostile with your own sin is being hostile towards the sin of other people. Because here's the thing. If I have sin in my life, it's not good for my family. I'm short with Owen. I'm disrespectful to my wife. I don't love them well. If I have sin in my heart, I'm not good to the church that I'm supposed to be pastoring over. If you have sin in your heart, it might not leak out. If you're a really prideful, arrogant person in your heart, and you know that, but you manage to pull it off on a social level, that's not fixing it. That's still not good for you, your roommates. It's not good for your roommates. It's not good for your boss. It's not good for your friends. It's not good for the non-Christians who are around you. Because in living that way, you're showing two things. One, sin isn't important. And two, as long as you look perfect, you're good. But by fighting against your own sin, you're being innately other-oriented. You're laboring in love. And the culmination of Christ's passage on humble servanthood is you fight your sin. Do not allow sin to reign in your heart. And look at the end of this. I love the references at the end. Verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What does salt have to do with any of this? Okay? He uses, it's painful for me to read as a journalist and knowing that you should like not repeat words, this is painful to read. It's like find a different analogy, Jesus, than salt. Why is he using this word salt? Look back um, with me to Leviticus 2.13. It'll be up on the screen. God is giving principles and rules about offerings for sins, and he says this. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you should offer salt. So again, that word comes up, and it's framed not only in offering excuse me, not only in offering salt with your offerings, but he says, remember the salt of the covenant. So, so what, what's going on here? See, in America, we had salt for flavor, right? But in ancient Near East times, in the Bible times, salt was something they used to preserve food because refrigeration didn't exist. And so any sort of perishable food would be heavily, heavily seasoned with salt in order to preserve that. And so what God is saying here, he's saying you need to season your offerings with salt because this covenant I'm giving, because this reprieve for sin that you're offering needs to be preserved. It needs to be timeless. It can't go away. But see, Jesus here, 
as he's been doing throughout the book of Mark, is again reframing and redefining things in Mark 9. Because Jesus, looking to Hebrews, because Jesus is the ultimate and permanent sacrifice, we no longer must offer salted offerings to God because through Jesus, you are now the salted offering. See what Jesus just said there? You are the salt of the the earth. And that doesn't mean you're the flavor of the world. You're not things that spice it up and make it interesting. You're not just these cuddly people who give snuggles to people who have low self-esteem. You are the preservation of God's covenant of grace made visible for all to see. And there is nothing more service-oriented to the good of humanity than people who are representative of God's faithful love in Christ Jesus. Through your service, through you seeing yourself as the greatest, redefined by Christ, you're becoming the greatest because you're portraying the greatest hope this world has ever seen. And it starts by following Christ. It starts by humbly cooperating with those around us. It starts by putting off sin in your own life. Do you then see, given what Jesus just this huge thing, do you see the weight of being a servant? Do you see the weight of, of being really real with yourself and stepping back and saying, does my life look like this? When people look at me, do they say, they wouldn't say this because they're non-Christians, so it would be weird, but do they say, that man is preserving the covenant of a faithful God and he's following someone else? Do they look and say, he's in my chemistry class. See, we should be distinct because of our servanthood. And our servanthood is distinct because of the one who saved us. Because in light of an eternal Savior who came to die for our sins, we have been redefined as people. To make a lasting legacy in this earth, you're not to carve out an image for yourself. You're to carve out an image and preserve a name for Christ. That's what it means to be a servant of all. In light of that call, we are to serve hand in hand as faithless, faceless laborers in the presence of a faithful, promise-keeping God. And we are to humble ourselves to become lasting Christ and to serve and to love and to give and to preserve God's means of calling all people to himself. So you, are you a servant in a biblical term? Lots of people open doors for people. Few people open hearts like Jesus has opened our hearts. Are you going to serve in that manner? Are you going to labor to that extent? Are you going to be hostile towards your own sin and humble in cooperation with others? I pray that this is true in you because this needs to be true for this group. It must be true for this group. If the University of Montana is going to be engaged with the treasure of Jesus, which is what we say we want to do, this group and all the other Christian groups must serve the way Jesus has called us to serve. Will you do that? Let's pray.